What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 46 of the Krause House podcast. 46 is looking lean right now. Just what one. do you have? Seven players. Seven players. This is a tough one, but I think I'm going to go Bo Outlaw. Same, dude. Bo Outlaw for one year. 05, <laughs> Phoenix Suns, Rex Specs and all. Dude, this got to be Bo Outlaw. We got Todd and Jay Murphy. I don't know if there's any relation there. Names are really similar. Three levels each. Todd with 1D. Same teams in the roughly the same years, 85, 86, and uh, Dude, 88. Yeah. Who are the Murphys? Dude, this is weird. Jason buckets. Collins, Nets on 14, and then your boy Aaron Baines. You strike me as an Aaron Baines fan. Yeah, I almost picked him. And yeah, I would say that I'm not necessarily a fan yeah, per se, I'm but sure. like, I think he was a really great fit for that Boston team, and that's the situation. Yeah, dude. You just scream Aaron Baines, Amor and Baines fan, and I was right. That's accurate. Did you see Jaws dunk by chance? How could you not? But, dude, what a freak. It was an incredible dunk. You know what I really like about the dunk, too? And I don't feel like this really counts as the dunk, but I really like the entry into the dunk. I like the crossover, and I think it was a right-to-left crosses over the defender and then gets into the launch space. And I, I don't know. I just, I really like those more than, and Blake Griffin's obviously had an incredible highlight reel of dunks, but I'm picturing that Blake Griffin in transition dunk, where it's your lane, getting prepared, three point line, elbow area, and he goes into the launch zone. There's something just so crispy smooth about Jaws cross, defender goes, he now gets into the launch zone and then does the amazing thing. It just feels like a two for one yeah, I mean, there's certainly a little guy bias with dunks just in general. It just looks cooler if you're 6'3 versus if you're 6'10. So that certainly factors into that one specifically with the Blake comparison. But then, yeah, the move itself, like I saw a nice little drop cross. It's just, it just like you start shifting your body as the ball's transitioning to the other hand. And just like the setup was there. And you knew, I think this is what you're getting at too, but the thing is like you knew what he was, like you saw it from free throw line extended that anyone in a radius of a couple feet is getting dunked on. Like you just saw how he was like dropping his shoulders and like already preparing for flight. And the crowd knew, I don't know if you caught this, but saw a couple like, you know, like 12, 13, 14 year old kids sitting courtside. They stood up right as soon. Like I said, free throw line extended. They knew I'm sure at that level too, you know, what's about to go down and he's taking no prisoners. And so that the whole thing was just cool. Not to mention the athletics, athleticism, the actual finish itself. Dude, it was just, it was sick. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're on the same wave. Like the whole thing is just, what do they have? Like those TikTok and YouTube things where it's kind of like oddly pleasing or something like that, where they have the different, like a perfect circle within a perfect circle. It has that feeling. That is fine. It's like the satisfying trends. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. Also too, a little like, because you could call it technically off the court thing, but Jabari Smith exchange with LeBron is like, Hey, like you played against my dad. Did you catch that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's certainly as a person who recently had a birthday and going through this feeling and talking to guys that I play basketball with and they're a bit shocked sometimes to find out my age, but I think that hit a little closer than home than, than it should have. What was your no, reaction? Yeah, it was, no, it was just super cool. I just liked the interaction and the genuine shot. Like, it leads me to believe, this is, again, just me picking up on just context clues from what I say. That might have been the first time that LeBron's ever heard that because of just how, I think he was genuinely like, 
wait, what? It's actually funny to say that because he said on a podcast later, he said it's really weird because as soon as he saw Jabari, he clicked immediately that he remembered. He told all of his friends and family that if Jabari were going to come up to him, he's probably going to mention that he actually played against his dad in his first game. And so that's actually that's part of what LeBron said after the fact that he already actually knew that in advance and actually assumed Jabari would tell him that. Oh, interesting. No, I just mean that like, I'm Dude, I'm, fu- I'm fucking with you. That's the whole thing about the times that LeBron's been caught lying about all these random things, like about books that he's been reading and predictions about how Kobe was going to score 81 in that game. Yeah, have you heard that meme? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. I see. I didn't know that. I was doing the LeBron uh, acted like gotcha. he was generally surprised, but then told the media after. Like, oh, no, I knew he was like, because I have a photographic memory, so I actually knew all that. So I was kind of just being chill. Like, so sorry, that was me digging on LeBron. I'm sorry. That's all right. Yeah, you were trolling a little bit. I'm just such a LeBron guy that I even all those lies he say, I just believe him regardless. <laughs> so I took your word for it. No, I think I honestly like his genuine reaction of wait, what? Like, I think if he had heard that a couple times before, then they'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember. But but it was a really like, almost caught off guard scenario, mm-hmm. which is, man, I'm old. And even Jabari, like Jabari, you can't really see LeBron's face, but Jabari was like, do you feel old right now? Because I think he saw it on his face. He's like, wait, I can't, almost can't believe what you're telling me. I just thought it was like a really cool exchange. I knew, it's funny because I knew Jabari's dad played in the NBA. I think I remember hearing that he played for the Kings, but I didn't put, obviously didn't put all that together. So that was, that, I just thought that was a cool exchange between super all-time great and a rookie. I thought it was cool. Yeah, it was super cool. I did see there was this little footage of LeBron like saying what's up to Jabari's dad at the end of the game. And my cynical or just demented mind did think like he was walking up to him and they like embraced like they knew each other. And I was like, I'm guessing that dude wasn't potentially even on the court or if he was, LeBron didn't scout him. LeBron was like thinking about, I'm thinking of who would be on that team, even like Doug Christie, maybe, or Vlade Divac is probably, these others are probably a little bit out. Chris Webber, still probably, yeah, Bibby. But I feel like his mind would have been thinking about those dudes, not Jabari Smith Sr., which I just thought was a funny little moment. Yeah, I think for two reasons, though, I still think it's one, they always talk about NBA being a fraternity. It's like, okay, if you're talented enough, everyone knows how much work you have to put in to get there, right? And like, how many people, it's like just under 4,000 have ever put on an NBA uniform that I feel like if you just randomly run into another NBA player that played at one point, like in the mall or something like that, you're just like, hey, man, what's going on? What's up? From what I hear, that's pretty standard. Second thing, I think it's pretty cool. I don't know if that was before or after the game. But if it's after, I think what's pretty cool is I think LeBron as a father can rash it. Like, dude, you're here watching your son or like you're watching your son play in the highest league too. So it's got double dip, right? It's like now your son made it. And like, he's thinking about Bronny who's now a senior, like him one day he'll be sitting in the stands watching his son play. So he just probably went over and was like, dude, dap you up. Yeah. They probably had almost no dialogue when they actually played, but like now it's, Hey man, nice to meet you type of thing. Uh, I will say I'm a little confused here. I'm fact checking here. Cavs Kings. (laughs) First oh, no. game of all time. I see Stoyaktovich, Divac, Bobby, or Brad Miller, Mike Bibby, Doug Christie. So shout out to my memory for actually getting some of that lineup, actually. But I do not see a Smith. Or sorry, Joe Parker. I see a Lawrence Fudenberg, Tony Massenberg, Darius Singal. It's not Parker. It's Smith. Jabari Smith Sr. Bobby Jackson, Chris Weber. So there's no Smith at all. There's no Smith at all. 
Did yeah, anyone just, fact check this? <laughs> did we just ruin like the best, like the most wholesome <laughs> NBA story of the week? How is this possible? This is not possible. Maybe his first game ever was a preseason game. No, no. His first game as an NBA player was against the Kings. His first one ever. First regular season game on the Cavs was against the Kings, 100%. And I do see he was on the Kings that year. That was his. So he got drafted by the Kings. He then went to the Sixers. Then he played overseas. And he came back to the Kings in that season. So we have a little bit of a mystery here. Well, if that's the case, then maybe whatever you're looking at from a lineup perspective is wrong. Maybe he was on IR or something or didn't play or I don't know. But if he got drafted by the Kings and was on the roster, there's some sort of indication that he was on the roster that year. Yeah, look, you're probably right. I don't, I'm not trying to, because maybe he was just left off because he didn't play any minutes either. Like maybe he was there and maybe he was on the bench, not suited up. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But I have it right here. Yeah, he got a DNP that year for that game. Okay, I just found him. I found that actual box score in the advanced charts. So ESPN doesn't show the players that did not play. So shout out to Rodney Buford, Anthony Peeler, and Jabari Smith Sr. who got DNP. Anthony Peeler. Oh my god. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I was gonna say there's no way that we could have been the first ones to bring that to life. I was like, oh, he was on actually. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) Actually. Uh, he, and to his credit, he played in 31 games that season. He did not start a single game. He averaged two points a game in his times. He scored 64 total points. So he was... He, did he, you said he got drafted that year or was, or was no, just on the so roster? He, yeah. No, so he got drafted the Kings and then he left and then he went overseas and then he came back to the Kings. So there was gotcha, a whole, gotcha. whole thing there. But that's probably... Yeah, so he got a DNP. So my original cynical story and i'm really doing a really shitty job of adding happiness to this world but he probably was in the warm-ups at the end of the bench and so lebron certainly wasn't thinking about him thinking about peja and brad miller and bibby and weber and christy and divak and bobby jackson like his mind and gerald wallace even young gerald wallace so that's a nice little fun fact there but anyways i'm sorry i'm being a grinch right now no that's cool that's cool just always grinching so you and I have separately been working on pieces related to, it's going to sound meta, but just cross house as it relates to ownership. But I think for me personally, one of the things that we've heard from the community, one of the things that we've heard from, I'll call them like advisors, external partners or whatever, is that we're having a lot of cool conversations or making a lot of progress. And like, what is actually going on in these meetings? Like, how is the cross house pitch? being received what are we doing that's interesting what are we doing that's not interesting what are we doing that they might not be thinking about but after we're done with the pitch they're like a light bulb goes off so the thing i've been working on gathering some information from articles talking to different people and obviously my own personal experiences sitting in the room kind of this concept of open sourcing to some degree on some of the conversations with owners because it is a very fascinating think to most people that we get in the room with some of these guys and get to talk to them and fortunate to be in the position to at least represent Krauss House in that regard. So I've had this thesis, I don't want to call it a thesis, but this kind of like this analogy that I'm working with of like maybe DAOs are just open source organizations, right? And similar to like the revolution that took place in open source software. Maybe it's as simple as that. It's open these communities, right? That are on missions or looking to acquire something, venture, but whatever. But everything is just open source and easy to, easier to access than 
a traditional organization. So with that being said, I'm still fleshing it out, but I think it'd be good to go over talking points with you, summarizing some of the conversation into certain categories. And obviously you being in the room with me, I think we can do maybe a little bit of a sneak peek. What do you say? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I think it's something that I certainly, when we've had deeper conversations about it, I think some people are surprised about some of the things that really resonate with them and then some of the things that they're not really thinking or care about. And then I think the last part is like some of the human concerns. Yeah, let's dive in. Cool. So I think from like a high level perspective, I think setting the stage before is probably the best. Like it's really hard to say when you talk about like emails, phone conversations, in-person meetings, text messages, like the time that we've spent. I have like a rough estimate, right? Three hours worth of meetings, which is crazy. It seems like way more than that, but like actual dialogue, maybe three hours with like majority owners or prospective owners, maybe another two with like front office, people that have worked in the league, things like that. If anything, those are conservative numbers, but like it's been at least that. And I think, again, just because of our kind of novel approach of doing this and because we're doing it in a community, I think, like I said, disseminating this information back in a nice cohesive way is probably the best way to go about things. So I've broken them up, I think, into four kind of what I'm calling opportunities, right? Like four things that simply put, owners would look at us as ways that we could help add value to the cap table that we can either bring kind of new innovative ways to doing things that they haven't quite seen before, or that's a problem that they recognize that they need help with, but maybe not want to do like staff augmentation to actually go and get those things. And just like, why are we uniquely suited to do those? And I actually, for almost every single one, I would like to hear your thoughts on those specifically. But the first one I have is around fan engagement. And I think for some time, the relationship between franchises and their respective fans have been mostly abstractive, right? Come into the stadium and buy the tickets, buy the merch, watch the game on TV. We're going to give you kind of value and entertainment. But I think we see these trends like across all these different cultural pillars of society, like music and art. It's like those lines are kind of start to blur a little bit. And I think that at least the keen owners understand that. And so one thing that we really value is that like, we believe that teams really excel when they could tap into the power and harness the power of the fan base. I think giving fans the opportunity to deliver on team success, both on and off the court is going to be the trend that defines 2020s, right? Like, and just moving forward, like it's going to be a thing. So I think that seems to be, and like the owners are pretty receptive to that. And for good reason, right? These guys are entrepreneurs, right? Did Delivering value to the customers is very high priority, if not number one. So delivering value to the fans. And I just think they look at us as a new approach to doing something that could be different, not only the execution part of the everyday ideas, the intuitive ideas, but also adding a sprinkle of innovation to go with that is really appealing to them. So I'll stop there, but like specifically around fan engagement, like how have you thought about that with Krause House? Like why should we be doing it? What specifically are our owners looking for? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, the thing that has, I think there's probably like two points to touch on. The first one is that they've seen and they know this, knowing the Green Bay Packers situation, knowing how much interest getting on their cap table sort of draws. Like they have, I think, this intuitive feeling of yes, everyone loved to be an owner. I wanted to be an owner. And depending on how long they've been an owner, it's either a new thing for them or an old thing for them. But regardless, they just know that everyone loves 
being an owner. And then I think the second thing is, I think almost all of them have looked at crypto and DAOs and some flavor and just really are interested in this idea of new ways of providing ownership. And so I feel like a lot of them, they don't have the perspective we have around the remixing access equity and governance and doing this in compliant ways. But as you mentioned, like they have pretty sharp minds and are very entrepreneurial in this. And so I think they see like, oh, I own this thing and this thing is awesome and people want to do what I do. That's one fact. And then, oh, there's like this whole movement in cryptocurrencies and this NFTs and DAOs and whatever that people are like clamoring over around new ways of owning and interacting with things. And they're like, huh, like, like, that's interesting. But then I think it like roughly stops there, right? It would just be like, oh, like, maybe the way I think about quantum computing or something right now. Yeah, I've heard a lot about quantum computing, roughly know how it works. I know it's going to change everything. Have I seen one? Do I interact with them? Do I Google about it? No, not really. But like, it's out in my existence of knowing that there are quantum computers someday potentially coming and some people think that that changes everything and perhaps even disrupting cryptocurrencies as a side. Like, it's just these two interesting things that sort of could be combined in a unique way that they're... And so I feel like when we have that part, I think it attaches and it's okay, what's changed? Why now? And I think had we made this pitch 10 years ago, they would have been met with some interest. But I think they, when you're able to interweave a little bit of, oh, there's actually some new mechanism technology to apply here, the why now piece really shines. So that's the only other piece I'd add. Yeah. Yeah. Great points. It is, like you said, it is interesting to how they think about these things. And I, it's a really nice segue into the second category, which is international expansion and exposure. And what's really interesting about the dynamic between what we just talked about and expanding internationally is that they're not, it's not a straight line. It's not a linear progression. The difference between acquiring new fans internationally versus making existing fans both locally and just in the US feeling the value and the feeling like the team has their best interest are like different strategies right so it's not like you just work inside out those are like different things but just the NBA is on fire internationally right like i'm reading global viewership at NBA is is up 30% year over year, 80% of games are consumed outside the US, most of those coming from China, Southeast Asia, and Eastern Europe. And the NBA has over 210 million subscribers and followers worldwide, which is more than any other league in the entire world, including like the EPL, La Liga, even top soccer teams, sorry, soccer leagues. So just like an incredible impact. But we know from these conversations that particularly smaller market teams, even mid-market teams, they're not really seeing that activity from a fan base perspective. I think one thing that's really interesting about Krausehaus is like roughly 50% of our community is based outside the US, right? We've done activations in Guatemala. We've done them in the Philippines. And both of those cultures, how they view basketball on the local level, so like pickup games and tournaments into the highest level, which is NBA games, are radically different, not only from each other, but from the US as well. And so it's like, it's not just something like, hey, let's like run some games over in these other countries. Like, no, understanding how that society views basketball and what their relationship to it is a massive opportunity to turn these somewhat agnostic fans. They're just like NBA basketball fans and make them fans of certain team. I think they're desperate to have a team that they can support. And so 
there's just this massive opportunity to do that. And so we've talked about this, like by pairing existing fan base, right? Which is the fan engagement thing we just went over at number one with newly acquired fans on a global level. Like Crosshouse, like we talk about our mission, like our Crosshouse can quite literally turn a small market team into the internet's home team, which is just like just radical to think about. And I think with these conversations we're getting out, I think they're understanding the opportunity, the challenge, and then how we are uniquely suited to address that. Yeah. And I think you, it, I'm going to try to say this with as much kindness and love and appreciation for the NBA owner collective and commissioners, predominantly David Stern and Adam Silver over the past 20, 30 years, is that I think that their product at the end of the day has had immense product market fit. I think part of it is related to the NFL and some of the head injury stuff. I think it's some of the rule modifications and changes they've made. I think culture just happened to dip into basketball. I think they've been very progressive and really great stewards of how to think about the business of basketball and really being open-minded about broadcasting and having apps and getting their highlight clips onto YouTube and TikTok and Instagram. And I think the NFL and the MLB is an example of fought that. And obviously both of those sports have had their own unique challenges. But my point here is that when I picture the professional basketball ecosystem, specifically with the kind of context of the NBA, is I don't really see individual owners doing amazing things in that realm. Like, of course, the focus is on winning championships and building incredible cultures. The spurs come to mind, right? It's like hiring the right people, having the right temperament, the right time, like the right discipline, and really doing these long-term kind of core basketball things to be competitive and then drive the business forward. But the collection of teams have had massive valuation increases in massive numbers. And I think part of that is just this collective of the ownership group, just making generally good macro decisions and being in the good favor of culture and society and technology all moving in this direction as well. So it reminds me of a startup that the product isn't like the product market fits so strong. Yeah, they have some bugs. Yeah, there's some app crashes, server gets down, but like product market fits so strong that it's like it's pulling the valuation along through and they're along for the ride. And of course, I think if they were on here, like, yo, you're way underappreciating how much we've gone into and figuring out the CBA. Totally. And that's just the naive, simplified version of it. But what I think is really interesting about this next generation of valuations is if you accept my premise is roughly true, you have a collection of owners that have predominantly done whatever they've wanted, however they've wanted with their teams and have generally had massive returns. And now you're starting to have people come in and buy in at very extremely high valuations, very high multiples on revenues, really elevated asset. And so now all of a sudden, if they want to make those same types of returns, they have to think entirely different ways. They have to start competing entirely different ways. So the analogy I'd like to play out here is imagine that 30 farmers got together and they had a shared crop of land. And they just so happen to put down, let's say, wheat and some fertilizer. And it just so happens the soil is amazing for that. The weather is amazing for that. And there's a town nearby that loves wheat. <laughs> and the thing just took off. And it's like this farm, this is pre, no one knows. And it's like this farm field is just insane. And they're just cutting hay or cutting wheat, selling it as hay. And now it's like nose wheat. Now you're being sold against some potatoes. And there's a tomato farm down the road and like that. And now we're starting to see some of these owners, some of these farmers come in and go, okay, wait a second. If I'm going to buy this little slot within this farm, 
Like, how could I cut the hay more efficiently? How could we make sure we're using the right seed? Are there different fertilizers I should be using? Because I'm, I bought in at a price where all of this is taken off already. And so when I think about like, why now? I also think there's this new lens of these new ownership groups. And then also the ones who are really committed to who really want to squeeze every edge. And some of the owners are like that. Some of the owners are not like that. I think this like, why now thing starts to emerge again, which is like the valuations have jumped so much that there's almost a new game of who wants to go squeeze the edges and go push the envelope here because the era of the easy wins may or may not be behind us. And so I think that's another fascinating motivator for some of these owners that yours really perk up and say, okay, yeah, like I want to do the international exploration because going back to my analogy, that's a new farm type down the road. And it's, yeah, man, let's go explore what farming in that world might look like. And not many of these other farmers in my wheat farm are even thinking about that because they've just been counting their dividends off of the wheat. But I want to go think about the next thing. Let's go talk about that. And maybe that, I don't know if that analogy hits or not, but I really resonate with this idea that there's this turn to a detail, turn to attention of where else can we grow massively? And I think the answer is obvious. It's really tapping into the international markets in entirely new ways. Yeah, a great segue and also a little bit of a teaser of the next category. But I want to, I do want to jump back to something you said early on, which was the focus being on winning. I think traditionally and for very good reason, that's been the strategy for every owner, right? I feel like there's a bit of fair weathered fans in all of us, even the most diehard, right? Like you watch more Bucks games today than you did in the early 2000s. For sure. And I watched way more Wizards games when they were taking on LeBron in the playoff, like that season, than I do today. It's just, it's just the nature of things. And I think like, really good teams foster really good fan bases, right? And then when that when the loss column starts to tick up a little bit, those fans become less engaged. So it's for very good reason. We're saying quite simply, and this might be some oversimplification, but it's like they don't really have to be mutually exclusive. It's like it's like how do you retain the diehards that regardless of the record, they're showing up to games, watching every game on League Pass. And then how do you tap into the network of prospective fans in these like both thriving and emerging NBA markets. It's like you should be focusing on winning because that fixes a lot of problems. But can you do something both in good years and bad years at the same time to like keep cultivating, pun intended with your analogy, but keep cultivating that those fan bases and watch them grow? I think you can. But if you don't have something like Krauss to do that, it just becomes a little bit more difficult. You have to split your time or you have to hire people or maybe get an agency, which would cost money. So that I think simply is what's really interesting about this general model. But I want to move into number three, because you definitely started to touch on this is like additional revenue streams, right? No mystery that the NBA earns the lion's share of the revenue from like media rights deals, but like they also have ticket sales, merchandise, corporate sponsorships, things like that to draw the revenue in those, like we talked about valuations getting sky high player contracts, sky high. The media rights deal will always continue to, to grow as long as the league goes. But at the end of the day, they're running a business, right? And so if they can tap into ancillary revenue streams that didn't exist before, obviously they're going to, they're going to look at that again, all of these, every single one of the, these guys is entrepreneur. We've seen teams begin to investigate into all alternate revenue streams. We've seen virtual reality, augmented reality experiences. We've seen NFTs. We've seen alternate streaming services. 
non-endemic corporate sponsorships are obviously a thing. We saw mobile apps. NBA is really keen on figuring out like wagering and gambling laws. They're obviously going about it very carefully, but that's interesting to them for the revenue perspective. You've seen a lot more licensing deals. So anyway, it's something that's at the top of their mind. I think with things that we're doing of product and services and obviously being Web3 native, we do bring some expertise to the table that they're not quite seeing. They obviously get pitched a lot of products and services to launch NFTs or whatever. But like, even if it's on an advisorship level, all the way up to actually building in-house, I think that hesitant to call it incubation, but like that roster to be thinking and evaluating things like that, especially we skew much younger than all the front offices that we've met with, obviously. I think that's interesting to them. I think that's okay. Like, especially if you guys are co-owners, like you're going to have the team's best interest in heart. Can you build these things? Can you analyze these things? Can you research these things? And can you advise us on these things on implementation and ongoing maintenance? Like that seems to be really interesting based on the conversation that I've perceived at least. Yeah. And, I'm, and I can't remember the, I think you and I were talking about this, about the ad agency that their kind of bread and butter was that they actually took equity instead of ballooned cash. Red Antler? Yeah, Red Antler. And I just think it's a really compelling pitch to a founder or an executive to say, hey, these guys, yeah, they might ask for a baseline comp to break even, so to speak, on implementing this or some sort of modest discount. But they would really prefer equity because they feel like their work's so good that they'll capture so much more value in having that equity upside. And I think that's part of our the charm of our pitch too is, hey, you know you have an amazing asset. We want to buy in and then go do this stuff. We don't want to try to sell you this million dollar activation. We get X amount of cut and royalty. And like We just want to do this side by side. And we have an amazingly talented community of folks that want to go do that with us. So I also think that just is a much more compelling very partner-driven pitch rather than a mercenary or consultant-style pitch. Exactly, exactly. So it's, it's this mix of the talent to go do some of these things and having expertise and also that partnership piece. It's like the trust that there's the best interest at heart to be like, hey, if we can't do it ourselves, we'll do the best to give our best guidance on what we think we should do. I think that peace of mind is, I think both those things together is the most powerful. Last but not least, so this one is like, you could probably argue it's not on the list or shouldn't be on the list at least because it's the least intuitive. The other ones are, I think the owners are already thinking about, but I think what's interesting about this one is it's not intuitive on the surface level, but it ultimately gets brought up. And this is, I think the biggest kind of light bulb moment, and that is leveraging the Kraus house as a talent pool and like a talent acquisition pipeline. So we've talked about this before. We use this analogy of a dam or like a hydro plant, right? It's like a structure to harness the kind of chaotic power that is exists in the current fan base, but then be used in specific ways to help your organization. So if like fan base is the rapid Colorado river that just exists, right? Then yeah, I guess it's a water source, but like Other than that, it just exists in nature. There's not much to do. And if you look at kind of the owners as the mayor of the towns across the street, that's just like, yeah, there's a river, people enjoy it, and that's it. We're coming to them and say, why don't you use the energy produced by the river to provide lighting and electricity to your city, right? And they're like, what do you mean? It's, yeah, we can set up something like a dam that harnesses the power of this body of water to 
cut your electric bill by a significant amount, right? And then immediately add value. Crosshouse may be this black box, like that's our job, right? It's like, we have a proposal process, we have governance, constantly iterating on how we structure teams, but I think the owners don't really care. Can you surface the best people to me to do the right jobs at the right time? And that is, I think the most eye-opening thing where they're like, whoa, I didn't quite think of that. And so the ability to leverage the distributed talent pool from these professionals is wildly unintuitive, but they quickly realize that as a distinct competitive advantage, particularly for first movers, which I think is always, I think of the four, probably the most exciting, because like I said, it's quite the swing from not thinking about that at all to being really exciting. Like we have a ton of exemplary projects where we've done that, right? NFT NYC comes to mind. The analytics project that Bayesian and Greg threw together comes to mind. Like we're showing this right right now as, a, as things like, hey, this could be a business development. This could be front office. This could be GM related. It could be engineering related. It could be marketing related, but there's ways to tap into that. That's our own whole underlying thesis that again, doesn't quite jump out at first to the owners, but an amazing value proposition that we bring each time that I've seen attract a lot of interest and get those eyebrows perking up from both prospective groups and current groups. Yeah. And one thing I tried to do is really abstract away from Krausehouse. That's obviously like Krausehouse is the initial gravity source of that concept. But when I think about a particular team being saying yes to this, it's it's about Krausehouse working with that fan base, old and new, to then go and explore what that talent base looks like. And obviously, it's going to be a little less, it's going to be a lot less crypto savvy, but there's a bunch of other things and perhaps in really large numbers. This is obviously super generalization, but if you take a fan base like the Lakers, A, you're just going to have a massive amount of humans to work with. So that's already an interesting problem and, and an opportunity. Second thing is, yeah, you might have sort of West Coast, you might have more media, music, film, art type stuff, and say a Milwaukee crowd. And so there's going to be these unique DNA of that fan base that we'd be able to work on facilitating. And that's what I love about the damn analogy is that you could think about us as, it's okay, the, this water, I mean, this is a terrible analogy, but this water is more salt water or it's brackish water versus fresh water, right? And maybe there's different little tools and mechanisms and functions that we actually have to run through the dam that's handle that base. But maybe there's something that we can kind of go do with that. And I just think it's a really interesting kind of opportunity for us to abstract all of that into that mechanism and say, hey, like owner, like where do you feel comfortable deploying this? And I think that's always one thing that resonates the best with the pitch is like we come in, we have our best guesses, we have our kind of insiders and network of, hey, they're probably thinking about this area the most. And so we kind of lead in there. But it's also about going back to the, analogy, it's like, hey, man, like we're going to generate electricity. And we think you're going to want to power things like schools and homes and hospitals and things like that. Maybe you want to build in a theme park. And let's talk about how much electricity that theme park needs and where it's based and how long the power cords would be like. So I think that's part of the, we can always go back to them a little bit and say, hey, let's, what do you want out of this? What would you do with more electricity or different electricity or free electricity? What would you go and do? And let's talk about building ways to, to make that happen. Yep. Spot on. Spot on. Those four things, right? I guess for those listening, quickly run through them again. So f- how I would summarize all the interactions with our value proposition, the owner's kind of interest, obviously there's different value stacks per owner, but I think if I were to 
bucket these and anything that any of them found interesting to go do. I put them in the fan engagement realm, international expansion and exposure. Can we drive additional revenue streams as a collective? And the distributed talent pool that Crosshouse offers is probably how I would summarize this. So kind of looking at this again in the spirit of open source, like trying to have some facts back to this, not only firsthand accounts of us, but some general trends and direction that we see the NBA heading, the macro environment, if you will, laying out some kind of food for thought, like some just general questions that we have that I think the owners would be interested in learning more. So I'm going to be dropping those, but be on the lookout for this to come here within the coming weeks and share it. And we're fortunate enough to sit in these rooms and have these conversations, which is so crazy. So we want to open that up and deliver it back to the community and some of our finding and insights. And what hopefully happens is that we give enough nuggets of information that inspire people to say, oh, this is really interesting. I have an idea here. Oh, let me partner with this Jerry and go build this thing based on what we're seeing. Obviously we have the open door policy. If something piques your interest or you get those creative, the need to have a creative jam session, we're here. Go Bucks. Go Bucks. Go Wizards. Dude, Wizards is just so sad. I was just looking at the standings, by the way, and I feel like so Nuggets number in the West. Nuggets, Grizz, Pelicans, Kings, Mavs are the top five teams in the West currently. And I was like, I don't know what year, but it's probably something like 2008. If I saw those teams as being the five best teams in the West, I would be like, oh, this is like a video game simulation someone did a fantasy draft on. There's no way those five teams are the best teams in the NBA or in the West right now. That's just crazy to see. Which I think is a good thing for the average fan. I think the NBA probably wants those names to be the Knicks, the Bulls, the Lakers, the Heat. But I think for your average fan, yeah, dude, that's really cool. Thank you guys for listening. You know where to find us. And wag bat.